0: In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Are the Bible's prophecies today's reality? This could be the sign that signals the return of Christ. World leaders are working behind the curtains. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. Secret societies, Secret oaths. Proceedings. Now, get ready for an hour of truth that will make you think. We'll examine Bible prophecy and see how close we are to the return of Jesus Christ for his church. You're in the zone. In the zone. Politics, Israel, the Middle East, the revised European super state, and more. All in the zone. This is the Prophecy Zone with your host, Phil Armstrong. Phil Armstrong. Johnson. I am the host of As the Day Approaches, and I want to welcome each and every one of you here today on this episode of uh, our show, of my show. I just want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, we are going to do the uh, next uh, section on the Prophets of Islam, Part Two. Before I get into this, i want to uh actually make you aware of a show that is a very fascinating show that I enjoyed doing on march twentieth uh is the round table and you have the opportunity to listen to Phil Armstrong, Susan Puzio, Christine Weick, and myself discuss about last day's events about what's going on in the world about revelation, about false teaching. I really enjoyed this time that we had together, and I hope we can uh, do it again very soon. But join us and listen to an archived copy of this show and uh, hear what we all have to say. We are all hosts here on this um, Blog Talk Radio Prophecy Zone, and uh, we want to give you the best of the best is what we have to offer. My focus on this show is on uh, prophecy, of course, world religions, uh, counterfeit Christianity, and religious tolerance or intolerance, however you want to define that. We are on a series of Islam and Last week we talked about I talked about uh the prophets of Islam and I introduced you to the the two types of prophets I can cons- I consider um speaking today. We're hearing a variety of voices, but there are two main sections of prophets from Islam that are speaking and I really want to encourage everybody to listen to what they're saying. One of the types of prophets, which is a kind of a group of prophets, I consider uh, the prophets against Islam. These are people who are actually warning the West, warning all of us who are kind of ignorant about Islam and what their uh, intentions are, what their religious beliefs are. Uh, These people are speaking out to let us know what Islam is all about. They're speaking against Islam and warning us to beware and not to entertain it or receive it. These particular, uh, what I call prophets, they're not necessarily called prophets, but I call them that because of what they're actually doing, is uh, Walid Shabbat who is an ex-terrorist. Uh, he was part of the Fatah movement of Yasser Arafat, and he actually became a Christian. Uh, how he became a Christian is he wanted to prove to his wife that Islam was the only way. So she said, and she was a Christian and, and from Mexico, she said, why don't you get a Bible, and if you can if you can prove to me that the Bible is not true and if the Bible is false and Islam is the truth, then I will follow Islam. So he went and got a Bible. He was so excited. And when he did that, he actually found out that he was on the wrong side. He was on the side of Islam and he was on the wrong side in the end. He became a Christian by his own studies of the scriptures. Now, Wafa Sultan, she is a uh, Syrian um, uh, Muslim. She is not a Christian, uh, but she speaks about this God of Islam. Her focus focuses on how Islam treats treats women. She also uh, believes wholeheartedly that it is Islam That is the problem, and not the culture, but Islam, the message of Muhammad. And she encourages everybody to study the life of Muhammad, Muhammad, and then they will know what exactly we're up against. Another person I introduced you to last week, her name is Brigitte Gabriel, she uh, told her story. She is a Palestinian Christian who grew up in Lebanon in uh, during the war, civil war when Yasser Arafat and the, uh, the Palestinians came over to Lebanon to because they were kicked out of Jordan, basically. And she uh, spent uh, most of her life in a bomb shelter. Because the very city, which was the Christian section of Lebanon in the south south of Lebanon, I can't remember the name of the city, uh, was being targeted as an attack zone for the Muslims. And she said that what they did as a country is that they invited uh, these people in, in, uh, Muslims in, and said you can join in our um our uh, elections come in and participate uh in in our conversations we, you know we have jobs here we will befriend you and she said that as christians befriended them and and the democracy within lebanon befriended them islam began to participate in their uh, political programs political uh uh elections and once they got power they crushed and destroyed and killed everyone who did not follow islam <clears throat> excuse me they ruined the n- democracy in lebanon she is she warned say, saying this is what is happening here now in the west that islam is using our democracy against us to uh, destroy us. And she says they are working within. Now, today I'm going to introduce you to another um, prophet against Islam, but my focus on today's show is actually going to be not uh, the prophets against Islam because this one last one I'm going to talk about is going to launch us into a conversation about the actual prophets, the Mahdis, the Caliphs, the, the, um, the Sheikhs of Islam, what are they saying? What are they saying? Now, are they saying that they want to have a global revolution to take over the world, or is it that they, they just want to live in peace and harmony and security within their own uh, confines of their own culture? and they don't want to be invaded by, you know, uh, Western forces or whatever? Or are they on the offensive to make the world Islamic under Sharia law? So we're going to listen today partly to the last one that I'm going to introduce you to of the Prophets Against Islam. But we're also going to listen to what... um, these uh, other prophets, these actual prophets today, and some past. I'm going to give you a little bit of the Quran. I'm also going to define jihad a little bit for you today as we continue going in this study on Islam. To start off with, I want to read something to you from uh, a book and an author. His books I love. The author is Joel C. Rosenberg and he write he's a great writer. He writes both fiction and nonfiction. And one of the books that I'm really getting into right now is called Inside the Revolution, How the Followers of Jihad, Jefferson, and Jesus are battling to dominate the Middle East and transform the world. This was published in 2009, so it's real fresh. It's got great information, and this is factual information. I'm going to read to you a little bit about this as our introduction to this show today. This this introduction is called "Not If, But When." Now, on April 1st, 1979, I, I mean Joel Rosenberg became the first Islamic Republic. In history, oh no, I'm sorry. It says Iran became the first Islamic republic in history. I read that wrong because I have a typographical error there. Three decades later, the shock waves from the Iranian Revolution are still being felt around the globe. Iran today is the most dangerous ter- terrorist state on the face of the planet. What's? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, Are we rapidly approaching the most dangerous moment in history of of the Iranian revolution? Iran's senior leaders have taught in recent years that the revolution is now reaching its climax. They have stated publicly that the end of the world is imminent. They have taught that the way to hasten the arrival or appearance on Earth of the Islamic Messiah known as the Twelfth Imam or the Mahdi is to destroy Israel, which they call the little Satan, and the United States, which they call the great Satan. They have vowed to annihilate the United States and Zionism. They have come to believe that Allah has chosen them to create chaos and carnage on the planet. The key leaders in Iran seem hell-bent on accomplishing their apocalyptic, excuse me, genocidal mission. They are fervently trying to build, buy, or steal nuclear weapons. Iran is actively testing advanced ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear warheads. Tehran is building alliances with Russia, China, and North Korea, all nuclear armed powers, and has cooperated on the development of offensive and defensive weapon systems with those countries. Iran's leaders are building a network of thousands of suicide bombers ready to strike American targets. They are sending suicide bombers and other insurgents mother, money and weapons into Iraq to kill Iraqis as well as American and coalition forces. They are harboring Iraqis as well as Amer. They're harboring scores of Al Qaeda terrorists and leaders inside Iranian cities and allowing terrorists to uh to make leaders inside Iranian cities and to allow uh terrorists to crisscross their territory. They are making concerted effort to enlarge the The reach of terrorist operations By building strategic alliances With other jihadist organizations Regardless of their theological differences The Iranian leaders are digging Hundreds of thousands of new graves Iran itself is Graves in Iran itself To bury the enemies of Islam They are calling for Unification of the Islamic world politically and economically, including the creation of a single currency. They are aggressively exporting their Islamic revolution to countries throughout the Middle East and around the world. Put simply, the leaders of Iran believe that Allah is on their side, the wind is at their back, and the end of Judeo-Christian civilization as we know it is near. Joe Rosenberg, you know, he goes on to explain that he believes God can and will change the course of his history; that He is all, that God is all powerful, and that the church might will be preserved. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that necessarily that Christ, what uh, Iran and Iraq and the Muslim world is saying that Christianity will end as we know it, but he 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 believes that God can preserve it but he doesn't he doesn't necessarily believe that there it won't be without a struggle. He goes on to, to say that, um with that said, the god of the bible may have other plans. If in his sovereignty he chooses not to remove the radicals from Iran peacefully, then i believe a major cataclysmic war or series of wars is coming soon as a direct result of the Iranian revolution that was set into motion by the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979. The United States, NATO, Israel, or some combination thereof couldn't initiate a preemptive strike to neutralize the Iranian nuclear threat. If they do not, Iran will soon be poised to launch the apocalyptic war required by its theology to destroy the West and usher in the end of days. The question we all must be asking is not if there will be a war with Iran, but when it will begin and who will strike first. Now, is this all true? Is this really going to happen? What is he saying? Well, something about Joel Rosenberg you need to know is that he really has an inside um, take on all of this as he he was very involved in politics and and um is has been involved in worldwide um information um uh that we security information that we don't have and he is is really speaking out on this subject it's quite interesting so we're going to take a look and find out is is this really what uh Islam is saying are they supporting Iran in what they say are they actually going to uh promote this movement now last week when i introduced Walid, Walid Shabbat, i told you about his book called why i left jihad and in it he says this the jews are not their only target i'm talking about islam if every jew in the world were dead it would not be it would not end The rest of you are infidels, too. The Koreans, Japanese, Britons, anyone, even other Muslims who don't adhere to the cult of violence. The motto is Islam to the world, the earth, they claim, belongs to Allah and his prophet. So he, being part of that movement himself, is actually saying, you need to listen. Listen to what we're saying. And he says that he is out to destroy, especially Christian and Jews, but he is also out to, they're out to destroy any of the other nations. So now, before we go into what this all is all, what this is all about, excuse me, I think I'm having some allergies um, attacking me today. I have my house open. I'm in Missouri. It's really nice today. And I have my house open. So if you hear that I'm a little congested, it's probably because I'm reacting to to um all the things blooming outside because it's spring. So if I have to clear my voice or if I sound a little bit raspy, please be patient with me. Okay, now we're going I'm going to introduce to you the uh other the last prophet against Islam. His name is Musab Hassan Youssef, and some of you may have heard about him. But he is—he um, was born in 1978, and his name actually means Joseph. Um, he was born in in a Palestinian, as a Palestinian, and he is the son of a Hamas founder and leader, Sheikh Hassan Youssef. Now, from 1997 to 2000. In seven, he worked undercover for inter- Israel's internal security service, Shunbet, that considered him the most valuable source within Hamas' leadership. The information Youssef supplied prevented dozens of suicide attacks and the assassination of Israelis and exposed numerous terrorist groups. Now, Yusuf has since converted to Christianity and moved to California. So he he left um, his home p- place in H- Palestine, which he lived in Ramallah, which is outside of Jerusalem. He didn't grow up there. He grew up part of his life um, in another small town. But he now has uh, left Israel and is living here in the United States. And he wrote a book uh <clears throat> That he calls uh, son of Hamas, and it's really good. He tells a lot about what um, Hamas is like, and what about terrorism is like. Now, now, his request for political asylum in the United States was granted pending a routine back check. You know, so he was granted it in, in just just as recently as June 30th. 2010. There was some kind of conflict of maybe that he would be deported because of the fact that he was a son of Hamas. (laughs) Now, Yusuf, uh, according to Yusuf, when he was growing up, he wanted to be a fighter because uh, that's what he expected, you know, from all arrogant children he was supposed to do that. And um, he was disparaged by all the violence and by the killing. And I think what really um, made him change his his mind and go investigate the Israelis is that he was actually going to be a spy within the Israeli compound for Hamas. And the treatment, though, he saw in prison, when he was in prison, of Hamas uh, soldiers and Hamas fellow um comrades torturing other hamas uh people really showed him the wrong way what hamas was about so when he went to work undercover for hamas within uh, israel the israeli intelligence he saw a completely different way that they r- related to him compared to how hamas related to their own people. And he ended up actually being a spy for Israel instead of Hamas. And he his father now excuse me. His father now has um disowned him. But in his book I wanted you to to, to hear what he has to say about his mission today. And he writes that his opening um dedication is riveting. My family, I'm very and this is what he says, My family, I'm very proud of you. Only my God can understand what you have been through. I realize that what I have done has caused another deep wound that might not heal in this life and that you may have have to live with the shame forever. I could have been a hero and made my people proud of me. I knew what kind of hero they were looking for a fighter who dedicated his life and family to the cause of a nation, even if I was killed, they would have told my story for generations to come and been proud of me forever. But in reality, I would not have been much of a hero. instead, I became a traitor in the eyes of my people, although I once brought pride to you, I now bring you only shame, although I was once was one once the loyal prince. I am now a stranger in a foreign country fighting against the enemy of loneliness and darkness. I know you see me as a traitor. Please understand it was not you I chose to betray, but your understanding of what it means to be a hero. When Middle Eastern nations, Jews and Arabs alike, start to understand some of what I understand, only then will there be peace. And if my Lord was rejected for saving the world from the punishment of hell, I don't mind being rejected. I I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that I am not afraid. And I know I want to give you something that has helped me to survive so far. All the guilt and shame I have carried for all these years is a small price to pay if it saves even one innocent human life. How many people appreciate what I have done? Not so many. But that's okay. I believe in what I did, and I still believe, which is my only fuel for this long journey. Every drop of innocent blood that has been saved gives me hope to carry on to the last day. I paid, you paid, and yet the bills of war and peace continue to come. God be with us all and give us what we need to carry this heavy heavyweight with love, your son. She tells a story further and he says, peace in the Middle East has been the holy grail of diplomats, prime ministers, and presidents for more than five decades. Every new face on the world stage thinks he or she is going to be the one to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And each one fails just as miserably and completely as those who have come before. The fact is, few Westerners can come close to understanding the complexities of the Middle East and its, and its people, but I do, by virtual, vir, virtue of a most unique perspective. You see, I am a son of that region and of that conflict. I am a child of Islam and the son of accused terrorists. I'm also a follower of Jesus. Before the age of 21, I saw things no one should ever see, abject poverty, abuse of power, torture, and death. I witnessed the -the behind-the-scenes dealings of top Middle Eastern leaders who make headlines around the world. I was trusted at the highest levels of Hamas, and I participated in the so-called intifada, I was held captive in the bowels of Israel's most feared prison facility and as you will see, I made choices that have made me a traitor in the eyes of people I love. My unlikely journey has taken me through dark places and given me access to extraordinary secrets. Yet he, in all this, he gives us a warning. He he ha- understands uh, from his own experience that what we are facing is uh, is more than just um, a religion. It's an ideology. He calls it kind of like a ghost. How can you fight a ghost? Because when, when he was working with the Shin Bet, they would go after all the Hamas leaders. And after they would kill some of their main targets... Hamas kept going. They didn't know who was pulling the strings. They didn't know who was behind it. But it kept going and kept going. It could not stop all the bombings. No matter how many people they captured, no matter how many people they put in prison, it kept going. They could not actually kill it. And uh, uh, Masav Youssef, he he says um, that it was literally a ghost. Is an idea, and you can't kill an idea. And this is where we come into contact with the jihad and the ideology that is actually permeating the world right now in what they call a revolution. This is an ideology, and, and what these prophets that are speaking against Islam are saying is that I, we are warning you of an ideology that you should not adopt you should not receive. You should you should not you should be very aware of their tactics and their ploys and how they go about working. One reason that Israel has caught a lot of the Hamas leaders is because they actually um put people and spies into the, the Hamas facility. Why we have not been successful in the United States for catching Osama bin Mata Laden or some of the other people we need to catch uh we have kept caught some is because we don't understand that we that technology and this is why nine eleven he feels nine eleven happened is because we were we were um uh putting our faith in technology and not really uh human uh infiltration into the movement, and that didn't work so um <clears throat> He, he describes Islam a very fascin- in a very fascinating way. A lot of people will say that, that is, Islam is a peaceful religion. And today I will challenge that idea uh, because um, Masab Yusuf actually tells us what it's like a little bit. He calls it, uh, he, he describes it like this. And I want you to hear this very carefully. Islamic life is like a ladder. With prayer and praising Allah at the bottom rung. So he's saying that first of all, you know, in this, and when he describes his father, his father is a good man, uh, even though he's a leader of Hamas. He's a good man, and he wanted to help people. He didn't. Want, he didn't like the political side of it. He didn't like the warring side of it. But he wanted to help people, and he was very um, liked by people. But he says that the Islamic light Life is like a ladder with prayer and praising Allah at the bottom rung. As you go further and as you go higher, you know, higher in Islam, and this is what the struggle is to getting to the top top of this ladder. The higher rungs represent helping the poor and the needy, establishing schools, and supporting charities. The highest rung, and this is where they all want to get to, and where they're all going, is jihad. The ladder is tall. Very few look up to see what is at the top. And now I'm quoting Musab Yusuf. He is telling us this: Few look up to see what is at the top, and and prog- and progressively is usually grad. And progress is usually gradual, almost imperceptible. Like a barn cat stalking a swallow, the swallow never takes its eyes off the cat. It just stands there watching the cat pace back and forth back and forth. but the swallow does not judge the depth. It does not see that the cat getting the cat's getting it a little bit closer with every pass until, in the blink of an eye, the cat's claws are stained with the swallow's blood. Traditional Muslims stand at the foot of the ladder, living in guilt for not really practicing Islam. At the top are fundamentalists, the one you see in the news, killing women and children for for the glory of God and the Quran. Moderates are somewhere kind of in between. Now he says of a moderate, which we see a lot in the United States, and we see it, um, uh, you know, those are the ones that, are called peaceful uh, Muslims, he says this about them. Masab Yusuf says, a moderate Muslim is actually more dangerous than a fundamentalist, however, because he appears to be harmless, and you can never tell when he has taken the next step toward the top. Most suicide bombers begin as moderates. Did you really hear that? He is saying that moderates are more dangerous because they appear to be harmless. But you don't know when they've progressed from being a moderate to the next rung of the ladder to a jihadist. And he is saying most suicide bombers in their attempt, those people in it, their attempt to climb that ladder to jihad are the ones who were who were the moderates first? Now, what are, we, what are the prophets of Islam? What do, how do they view uh, prophets, uh, their own prophets? Muslims, you know, identify the prophets of Islam as those humans chosen by Allah to teach mankind. Humans may rely on revelation or tradition to uh, identify prophets. According to Islamic tradition, each prophet conveyed the same basic ideas of Islam defined as submission to God, to his words and to his orders. They they brought the belief in a single God and in the avoidance of idolatry and sin. So this is what their prophets did. This is what the prophets of Islam uh were good at doing. Uh, Bringing the one world God, a uh, one world uh, belief in God that there is only one God. Excuse me, and uh, getting rid of idolatry and sin. Each came to preach Islam and told of the coming of the final law-bearing prophet and messenger of God, Muhammad. Each prophet directed a message to a different group, and each prophet taught minor variations of Sharia or the, mm, the practice of religion to a different target audience. These variations constitute applications of Islam, Mainstream Muslims do not consider them discrete versions of Islam. What I mean by that is that they do not separate Islam into groups like we have. We have separated them into, you know, the the moderate Muslims or the Wadi Muslims or this type of Muslims. There are several different types of Muslims, Sunni, Shia. These are sects. But for a Muslim, uh, the version of Islam is just a style and they're all Islam. Muslims do not consider them discrete versions. They they have conflicts within their versions of Islam like we do within the church. But all is Islam and all need to go by certain um, rules, fundamentals of their faith. Islamic traditions hold holds that God sent messengers to every nation. Muslims believe that God finally sent Muhammad to seal and to convey the divine message to the whole world to sum up and to finalize the word of God. So Jesus was not the final revelation. It was Muhammad who became the final revelation. Now I know for some of you who are listening today, this is all elementary. This is this is probably not necessary for you to hear, but for the... For those who are not very familiar with Islam, let me, you know, um, stay on this for just a second longer. Now, whereas he had previously sent the other messengers to convey their messages to a specific group of people or to an individual nations, it's Muhammad that actually has the final, you know, the final revelation. And he has actually finalized the word of God. And if you understand uh, how Islam is interpreted is that the the last one that is said is the final word. So anything before it, that's why, you know, a lot of the peaceful verses of the Quran or the Hadith and those things are in the beginning. At the end, you see the more jihad and the more warring and uh, the like. So, And that actually um, nullifies the the verses that came before. So when Muhammad came, he actually made Jesus obsolete. Now Jesus is going to play a part, and he does play a part in Islam, but not the part that he plays in the biblical you know, in the biblical sense of the word. Even though they do use the Bible, they do not see Jesus as the Bible reveals him. Muslims regard Adamus, the first prophet, and Muhammad as the last prophet. Now, Adamus is Adam, the first man created. From the traditional interpretation of Muhammad's title, the Seal of the Prophets, is where you can get some of this information. Islam regards Jesus as the Rasul and sometimes as a Nabi because he received Wai'e, revelation from God, through which God revealed the Injil, which means gospel, to him. Muslims have great respect for Jesus, known by the Arabic form of his given name of Esau, and for his mother Miriam they do not, however, regard Jesus as the son of God. Islamic theology recognizes as many as 200 224,000 prophets. According to the, to Wheeler, the Quran identifies 25 prophets by name, starting with Adam, Adamas, <clears throat> ending with Muhammad. Now, what does the Quran say about the prophets? The messenger believes in what has been revealed to him from the Lord, as do the man, men of faith. Each one of them believes in God, his angels, his books, and his messengers. They say, we make no distinction between one and one another and his messengers. And they say, we hear and we obey. We seek thy forgiveness, O Lord, and to thee is the end of all journeys. As out of Alba Cara, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that correct, so you guys might not recognize it. Who know? Who knows? Who knows this book? Uh, 285. <clears throat> now I'm going to list these prophets for you. Just a second. I'm going to list these prophets for you. Uh, the 25 prophets that are in the Quran. Um, the first one would be Adam, and I'm not going to read the Islamic name because I cannot um, pronounce most of them. Enoch, Noah, Noah, Hud, remember him, Salah, and there's a lot of scriptures, um, Hadiths from Salah, Abraham, which is Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Lot, Jacob, Joseph, Shuaib, and I don't know much about him, Job, Moses, Aaron, Ezekiel, David, Solomon, Elias, Elisha, Jonah, Zechariah, John, Jesus, John the Baptist, I mean, Jesus, and Muhammad. So when you hear most of those prophets, they come straight out of the Bible. Uh, I'll, I'll just kind of cue in a little bit of the prophet Hud. Hud and his people lived in the Yemeni province of this region is at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula, peninsula in the area of, of sand hills. Now his message, uh, the people of Ad worshipped several main deities whom they thanked for giving them rain, preserving them from danger, providing food, and restoring them to health after sickness. Prophet Hud tried to call his people to worship The worship of one God. So you see this one God worship to whom they should give thanks for all their bounties and blessings. He criticized his people for their vanity and tyranny and called upon them to give up the worship of false gods. Now, if you heard me read that, it said he criticized his people for their vanity and their tyranny. Now, if you would think of jihad, you'd think tyrant. You'd think that they are actually out to destroy and kill. <clears throat> that has far more meaning than just going out and kill. Tarani means that it be like a dictator who would come for his own benefit, to raise himself up for his own self, to oppress the people. And that is not how Jah- um, um, Jahid, I mean, Jihad, sorry, jihad is works, and I'll explain that to you in in, in a little bit. Um, vanity, they're very big on vanity of not having vanity. In other words, word, world possessions and those things that please you, you know, like um, uh, the cars and the luxuries of life that distract us, distract a person from pleasing Allah. Now, the Prophet Sallallahu. And he's he's kind of important to get to know because you will hear in a lot of the Quran and a lot of the Hadiths uh, you will hear him quoted quite a bit. Uh, his exact time period when the when he existed uh, preached and you know and preached is unknown, and he is believed to he came approximately 200 years after the Prophet Hud. The carved stone buildings which form much of the archaeological sites in Saudi Arabia uh, date to approximately 100 B.C. to 100 A.D.A. Other sources of place tell a story closer to 500 B.C. So it's kind of up in the air when exactly he came. His message, <clears throat> he tried to call his people to the worship of one God. There's that one God again, to whom... And they should give thanks for all their bounties. He called upon the rich to stop oppressing the poor. you hear that? He called the rich to stop oppressing the poor and for an end to all mischief and evil. Now, I'm, I'm pointing these things out, the vanity, the tyranny, um, um, the rich to stop oppressing the poor, for a reason, because I I want to bring these up later when we're talking about jihad and we're talking about what's happening in the world today. Now, how do the Muslims honor the prophets? Muslims read about, learn from, and respect all the prophets. Many Muslims name their children after them. In addition, when mentioning the name of any of God's prophets, a Muslim adds these words to of blessing and respect. Upon him be peace. Allah salam in Arabic. And and they say this every time they mention a prophet's name. So I had I have actually violated Muhammad by not saying upon uh, peace upon, upon him be peace. Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad. Now what is jihad? We're gonna go into talking about what how do the um Muslims, how do those prophets? How does Muhammad? How does the Quran see jihad? Now we in the West, you know, when in the West, have been told that jihad means just struggle, to struggle with your faith, as we are struggling as Christians. And it says uh, to to um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what they uh, say that jihad means, but that is not how how the prophets of Islam defined uh, jihad. <clears throat> one of the prophets, one of the sheiks, um, I'm not sure he is a sheikh, but his name is Abu Al Mahdi Dudi. You know, it's spelled A D U L A L A M A U D U D I. So those of you who know how to say that can uh, show me up when these days. What is jihad? So if you know, if if Islam, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote exactly what they say it is, and I'm gonna explain it along the way because some of this might not be quite clear. When you when you actually study the whole thing, you'll know what they're talking about. So I'm hoping I can give you some insight into what they're actually saying. So if Islam be a religion and the Muslims are a nation, Jihad, on account of which has been accorded the, accorded the dignity of the best of all prayers in Islam, they consider the Jihad the best of the best of the prayers, in which they want to they want to go forth with becomes. U- a useless term, but the truth is that Islam is not the name of a religion, nor is Muslim the title of a nation. <clears throat> and you may say, "What in the world are they talking about?" Hold on a second. In reality, Islam is a revolutionary ideology and a program which seeks to alter the social order of the whole world, and rebuild it to the conformity with its own tenets and ideals. Muslim is the title of that international revolutionary party organized by Islam to carry into effect its revolutionary program. And jihad refers to that revolutionary struggle and utmost exertion which the Islamic party brings into play to achieve its objectives. Now let me explain that for a minute. It says, if you, if you heard what it says, in reality, Islam is a revolutionary idea. It's not a religion. It's an idea, an ideology. And Muslim, instead of being a nation, is a program which seeks to alter, alter the social, social order of the whole world. And how they are going to do this is through jihad. That is the process in which they will bring this about, is through jihad. Like all. Quoting again, like all revolutionary ideologies, Islam shuns the use of current vocabulary and adopts a terminology of its own so that its own revolutionary ideas may be distinguished from the common ideas. The word jihad belongs to this particular terminology of Islam. Islam purposely rejected the word arb and other Arabic words bearing the the same meaning of war and use the word jihad, which is synonymous with struggle, though more forceful and wider in connotation. The nearest correct meaning of the word jihad in English can be expressed as under, to exert one's utmost endeavor to in promoting a cause. The question is, why was the use of this new word preferred to the exclusion of all older synonyms? The answer to this question is none else than that the word war was and, it, and still is still being used for struggles between nations and states, which are waged for the achievement of individual or national self-interest. The motive forces behind these conflicts are such that individual or collective purposes as are completely devoid of any ideological bias or support for certain principles – since islamic war does not belong to this category islam shuns the use of the word war altogether now here's the kicker you got to listen listen carefully islam has no vested interest in promoting the cause of this or that nation the hegem- hegemony hegemony which means domination, control, or supremacy of this or that state or the face of this, on the face of this earth, is irrelevant to Islam. So, what they're saying is that they have no vested interest in promoting the cause of this or that nation. The domination, control, and supremacy of this or that state on the face of the earth is irrelevant to Islam. They do not want to control a state. They do not want to control a nation. They do not want to control independent nations. Like, they do not want to control the United States of America. Now, listen to what they want to do. The sole interest of Islam is the welfare of mankind. Islam has its own particular ideological standpoint and practical program to carry out reforms for the welfare of mankind. That is a global ideology. Now, it's going to define itself a little bit clearer, and I will go back and make sure that you understand what they're saying. Now, listen carefully. Islam wishes to destroy all states and governments anywhere on the face of the earth which are opposed to the ideology and program of Islam regardless of the country or nation which rules it. So they're saying they don't want to come in and control the state. They do not want to let it exist as a state. They want to completely overrun it and destroy it. They did this with Lebanon, which you cannot even recognize that Lebanon used to be a democracy in that country. But that's not where they're going to stop. They want the whole entire world because they feel that Islam will, and Muhammad and the Al Mahdi will bring the peace and the social justice that is needed upon the planet to carry out righteousness and goodness throughout the earth. <laughs> The purpose of Islam is to set up a state on the basis of its own ideology and program, regardless of which nation nation assumes the role of the standard-bearer of Islam or the rule of which nation is undermined in the process of the establishment of an ideological Islamic state. Now, Islam requires the earth not just a portion, but the whole planet, not because the sovereignty over the earth should be wrestled from one nation or several nations and vested in one particular nation, but because the entire mankind should benefit from the ideology and the welfare program or or what would be true to say from Islam, which is the program of well-being for all humanity. They have no interest in just bringing Islam to a country to rest within the nation, to be peaceful under under uh, the rule of another nation, meaning, for example, the United States. They do not, their intention in being here is not to live peacefully among us. Their intention is part of that jihad and it can, can define itself and morph itself in different ways. When Islam is not in power, they will go through peaceful means, meaning political or in words or in teachings or in dawah. Um, uh, dawah um, Dawa is the preaching of Islam. So that people can learn about the ideology, but once it over, it gets up the ring of the rung of ladder, the ladder rungs to jihad, and overtakes by force. Um, well, maybe like in Lebanon, and went through the political system. It will crush and destroy anything that stands in its way of its ideology, and it will not accept anything other than their own. Now, quoting, this is one of their one of their main um prophets that are saying all this that I am I'm sharing with you today. Towards this end, Islam wishes to press into service all forces which can bring about a revolution and com and a composite term for the use of all these forces is jihad. To exchange the outlook of the people and initiate a mental revolution among them through speech or writing is a form of jihad. To alter the old tyrannical social system and establish a new just order or life by the power of sword is also jihad. And to expend goods and expect physically, exert physically for this cause is jihad too. So this is what I was just saying. Is either the um, jihad could be in speech or writing as and that's a form of jihad. It can be in um as in sword and to expend goods and exert physically for those cause is jihad too. This is why what we're seeing in Egypt in Libya are so important to watch. What has happened? in Egypt, is a form of shahad. They wanted to get rid of uh, um, Hosni Mubarak because he is a dictator. He is tyrannical for his own good and for the oppression of the people. He is not uh, under the dictates of the Islamic ideology. He is under his own ideology and pushing for his own idea ideological purposes. That is not Islam. Islam is for the ideological of the Islamic uh, belief, the Islamic ideology, which has to do with bringing about this message of Muhammad as the way to function in a society. And uh, Hosni Mubarak was not doing this. So they wanted to him in jihad, and how they did it was through peaceful protest. Uh, and and the Muslim Brotherhood is very much involved in that. By the way, the Muslim Brotherhood was birthed in Egypt. That's where the Muslim Brotherhood started. And next week we're going to talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and the Reign of Terror. That is going to be a very enlightening show for all of those who do not understand what this group is all about. Uh, also, in Libya, what is happening is jihad. Uh, Marmol Qadassi, uh is not one of them. He claims to be Islamic, and guess what? So was Sa- Saddam Hussein. He was of the Ba'ath Party, So so they don't mind getting rid of Saddam Hussein. They don't mind getting rid of um, Hosni Mubarak. And they don't mind getting rid of Muammar Gaddafi. Because these fellows and these leaders are dictators. They are not true prophetic prophets of Islam who want to establish a caliphate. They want to rule and they want to reign and they want to... (coughs) Okay, so what you see happening in Egypt and in Libya is the shahad. This is is supported and pushed forward um, by Iran and uh, Ahmadinejad. And uh, it is a very dangerous movement. And it's coming for you and it's coming for me. Our ideology as Christians do not fit with Islam. We actually clash with Islam. And we are actually the big Satan, the United States. And Israel, the little Satan. Israel will never conform to Islam. That's why they want to get rid of all Jews. And the reason they feel this way is because from the very beginning, when Muhammad first... um, um wanted to establish himself as the prophet, he went to the Jews to be accepted as one of their prophets. He claimed to be a prophet of God. And the Jews rejected him and said, you are not one of the prophets of Jehovah. You are not from him. And we do not accept you. So instead, what Muhammad did is he started killing them. If they don't receive me, I shall kill them. And this is where he started with the sword. This is from the very beginning of his his uh, reign, or his, uh, his prophetic life, and in, in, in the religion of Islam. Now, for the cause of God, the essential condition. But, and, and here the prophet goes on, but the, the, the jihad of Islam is not merely a struggle, it is a struggle for the cause of God. For the cause of God is an essential condition for jihad in Islam. This expression is also part of the special terminology of um, Islam to which I, the the the, the prophet who is speaking, has a- alluded to above. When I just read to you, <clears throat> what I just said to you, its literal meaning is in the way of God. It is. It is this translation which mis- misled the people into believing that jihad is the way of God enjoined or commanded forcibly conversion of other people to the faith of Islam. For the limited in- intellects of people, could take the expression in the way of God to mean nothing else than that. Now I I'm, know I'm, I just totally, totally confused you by what, but what I said. But if you, un- if you, it, I've got this whole entire. Um, Section that that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna share all of it with you, but when you read the whole entire section, when it talks about Shahad, is actually saying that um, those who are <clears throat> uh, misled uh, because they don't have the intellect are those who believe that struggle is not without force. Struggle is with force. It is a wide range in which. Um, it is, you know, it's not, it is done in force, whether that struggle be forced by the three ways that I told you or by sword. Um, and if you, you don't really force a person to be Islamic because you say you either accept it, they say you either accept it or you die. Okay, if you hear a phone ringing in the background, it's because I didn't take my phone off of, uh put it on silent, so excuse it if you do hear it. I do not take call-ins, just, just so, you, so you know, because um, my shows are not set up for that. Um, <clears throat> okay, let me get, get to a place that is a little bit easier for you to understand the condition. And the cause of God has been attached to jihad for the same reason. It strictly implies that when a person or group arises to carry out a revolution in the system of life and to establish a new system in conformity with the ideology of Islam, he or or they should keep no selfish motives in mind while offering sacrifices and executing acts of devotion to the cause. So that's why you can get um, suicide bom- bombers because they're not doing it for their own comfort. They're doing it for the cause of God. And if you can kill a whole bunch of people with of, of the ideology that um, is not yours, is not Islam or is against Islam, you're doing it in the cause of God. And you're actually sacrificing your own comfort and your own desire to live um, on the earth. The aim should not be to knock out an emperor and occupy the vacant throne, i.e. to become a Caesar, replacing another Caesar. The objectives of the struggle should be completely free from the taint of selfish motives like gaining wealth or goods, fame or applause, personal glory or elevation. And that's what uh, Muammar Gaddafi has done, what Saddam Hussein was doing, and what... um, in Hosni Mubarak. All sacrifice and exertions should be directed to achieve the one and only end, i.e., the establishment of a just and equitable social order among human beings. Now, you see, it's not saying one nation or certain nations, it's saying human beings. And the only reward is to view in view should be to gain the favor of God. The Holy Quran says those who believe fight in the way of God and unbelievers fight in the way of tagat, which means devil. So if you are not a believer in Islam, you are fighting in the way of the devil. So God is on your side if you're in Islam. So what does the Quran say about um this type of jihad, this kind of force? Does the, the Quran support what these prophets are saying? The Quran taught that a Muslim's duty was to perform jihad, and, I, and I'll show you where some of these are. I'm going to read some of those, the Quranic scriptures, um, and it is against infidels. Infidels are not innocent people. See when you hear somebody from the Islamic nations say that they don't do not excuse me do not kill innocent people, they're speaking the truth. they do not believe that they are killing innocent people. they believe that all infidels, whether they be a child or an adult, are evil they are guilty they are guilty for not receiving Muhammad. Uh, and are receiving Allah and his prophet, Muhammad. That, that is where the guilt comes. And this is what it says in Surah. It says, Surely those who believe, those who wage jihad in God's cause, they were, they were the ones who may hope for the mercy of God. Surah 2, 218. Jews and Christians are the ones whom God has cursed. The Quran teaches that they shall either be executed or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off alternately or be banished from the land. Muslims are commanded to kill them wherever you may come upon them and seize them and confine them and lie in wait for them at every conceivable place, Surah 9.5. The prophet and his followers are commanded to wage jihad against them, believers and the hypocrites, and to be stern against them, for their final refuge is hell. Infidels infidels will spend eternity in a blazing fire, with boiling water being poured down over their heads. All that is within their bodies as well as their skins will be melted away, Surah 22. Have nothing to do with them. Don't befriend them. Don't negotiate with them, don't do business with them. Allah has cursed the Christians and the Jews, and those whom he has utterly condemned he has turned into apes and swine, servants of, of power of, of evil sarah five fifty nine sixty fifty nine through sixty Muslims believe and wait for the imam who will bring justice and peace then that one will establish an Islamic empire that will transform the globe. But he cannot come until they bring chaos, to a type of jihad, to the earth. Because it says in the, in, in the scriptures, the Quranic scriptures, that he is going to come in the midst of chaos to prepare his way so that he can bring peace, justice, and and. Light to the earth. <clears throat> the, the Imam Mahdi is coming. The world transformation will be called a revolution. Now, have you heard those terms, revolution? Khomeini declared in 1980 to his fellow Shias we must strive to export our revolution throughout the world. This is where it started to to raise up this revolution. The governments of the world should know that Islam will be victorious in all the countries of the world, and Islam and the teachings of the Quran will prevail all over the world. The Holy Quran says, whomever Allah guides, has (coughs) excuse me. Allah guides has uh, whoever Allah guides. Sorry, is the rightly guided." But what does the Prophet, peace upon him, say to those who go astray, of those rebels who go far from the teaching of Allah? He says in Surah 1797 He will gather them on the day of resurrection, fallen on faces, blind, dumb, and deaf. Their refuge is hell, and every time it subsides, we will increase their blazing fire. The Quran says, The way. The weighing of deeds on the day of resurrection will be the truth. Those whose scales are heavy with truth, good deeds, it is they who will be successful. As for those whose scales are light because of evil deeds, those are the ones who have lost their souls, causing them to travel toward the fire because they mistreated, they knowingly denied our signs, Surah 7, 8, and 9 prophecies and appearance of the Mahi, Mahdi as well as specific visions and blessings over people are common right now um they really strongly believe that the Mah- Mahdi is is coming some believe he's here there are there are sheiks and and teachers prophets they're actually claiming that the time is very near within the next um one one of the teachers said um, back in the 30s that it was a 50-year period. So it's getting pretty close to that. Actually, it was maybe more like 49, the, the time that Israel became a nation, 48. And um said within 50 or so years. Uh, so they really believe this time is close. The Quran says that the Euphrates is going to get dried up and it's going to be dammed up by the Mah- Mah- Mahdi so that they can march over the Euphrates. And that's actually in, in, uh, in Revelation with the claim said that a 200 million armed uh, soldiers are going to come across. I believe that's China, actually, the, the king of the East. But the Euphrates drying up. It says in the in 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 the Quran that when that dries up, then the Mahdi is near. So, um, and then that a, a vast army is coming to attack. Kind of interesting. Now, will will the the you know Islam accept any beliefs other than Islam? There's is this this um, <clears throat> uh, teaching that says you know we're all. We're all just going to get together. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Buddhist or Islam. And there's a movement within the church called the Emerging Church that's actually trying to combine all these together, the ecumenical movement, saying that all is the way. But in the end, guess what? Islam is going to crush every other one of those because Islam will not go for that. Um, now, I want want you to you learn something about the difference between the freedom of thought or the freedom of and the freedom of belief because there is a misunderstanding and they clarify it. One of their um um Alatola morteza mutahari actually um explains the difference between uh the freedom of thought and the freedom of belief. She says this. Another point which should be stressed here is that there exists a difference between freedom of thought and freedom of belief. Human beings are endowed with the faculty of thought which enables them to make decisions on the basis of thought, logic, and reason. But belief entails a strong tie to the object of belief. And by the way, numerous are the beliefs that are not based on thought, but are sheer imagination, a result of upbringing and habits. And which even molest human freedom, what we say, looking at things from from the point of view of freedom, is that what mankind must have is freedom of thought, yet there are some beliefs which are not in the least rooted in thought; they have <clears throat> their root in the mere dormancy in mere dormancy and stagnation of the spirit handed down from generation to generation. They are the essence of bondage, so that war fought for the sake of eliminating such beliefs. Did you hear that? So that war fought for the sake of eliminating such beliefs is war fought for the freedom of humanity, not war fought against it. So they're saying a war or a jihad, and of course they moved away from the word war because it actually entails a lot more than just war, it says that the elimination of such belief, um is actually bringing freedom to humanity because whatever that, that thought process or that belief system is holding dear to is bondage if it's not Allah. A little bit of thinking would not allow him to engage in such an act what he does is merely a reflection of the stagnation and dormancy which have appeared in his heart and in his soul, and which are written in blind imitation. This person must be forci- forcibly freed from this internal, from the internal chains which shackle him, to enable him to think. So, what are they saying? Did you hear what they said? This person must be forcibly freed from the internal change- chains. Chains which shackle him, to enable him to think. So, those who recommend the freedom of imita- imitation and apparent freedoms, which in fact enchain the souls, such as the freedom of belief, are in error. What we advocate, in accordance to the verse, la ikraha is the freedom of thought. So they do not allow the freedom of belief. You and I are gone, according to Islam. Conform or die. Because you're actually, your thought process, they're saying, is um, distorted and evil. And you are not um, actually using your thought in an intelligent way. Now, what about Sharia law? Sheikh Muhammad Ibrahim al- al-Mahdi says this, the PA Constitution moreover formally adopted rigid anti-democratic Islamic Sharia law. Lest there be any doubt about its meaning, Islamic law carefully spells out institutional inferiority that has been forced on non-Muslims by majority Muslim societies since the time of Mohammed. A Sheikh As Sheikh Mohammed Al-Mahdi explained on official official Palestinian Authority TV in 2001, Muslims of Palestine want to meet Allah, and we are the soldiers of the caliphate that was announced by the prophet. Therefore, the caliphate will be in accordance with the prophecy in Al al Aqasa in Jerusalem, that's their, a temple in Jerusalem, and in its surroundings. We welcome the Jews to live as dimmits, but the rule in this land and in all of the Muslim countries must be the rule of Allah. Those from amongst the Jews and amongst those who are not Jews who came to this land as plunder must return humiliated and disrespected to their countries. Dimis, um means that um, uh, somebody who, who um non Muslim who's subject of the state governed by accordance with Sharia law. Linguistically the word means one whose responsibility has been taken. In other words, they they don't have any rights. This has to be understood in the context of the definition of the state in is in Islam, which is different from the current definition of the citizen of the state. The Dimma is a theoretical contract based on a widely held Islamic doctrine granting special status to adherents of Judaism and Christianity and certain other non-Muslim religions, people of the book. Dimma provides rights of residence in turn for taxes. This is actually an old practice, but I don't think that they're actually going to adhere to this um, in the coming of the last imam. Because their goal Is to get rid of it Should we worry? Is this revolution coming at any time? Do we need to to worry about this? Uh, A lot of people do Mohammad Ahmadinejad We all have heard about him And what he claims um, The Iranian Iranian dictator Uh, He actually believes that Every time you hear him speak, especially about the prophet, he says, uh, blessed be the prophet. He says that he is actually in the position he's in only for the sake of the coming of the Madis. Iranian President Mohammad um, Ahmadinejad's Anti-Semitic and anti-Israel views place him in the Iranian regime, him and the Iranian regime among foremost threats to Jews and the State of Israel. And now, I would I would actually extend that further than than the State of Israel. He is a threat. They're a threat to the world, but they're also inspiring and uplifting the jihads that are going on in Egypt and
1: in Libya right now.
0: Ahmadinejad repeatedly demonizes the state of Israel and openly calls for its destruction at every opportunity. And we've heard him say these on clips. Um, most notoriously, he has described Israel as a fake regime that must be wiped off the map. He termed Zionists the most detested people in all humanity and called the exter- called the extermination of six million Jews during the World War II a myth, claiming that Jews have played Nazi atrocities during the Holocaust in a bid to extort sympathy for Israel from European governments. Ahmadinejad's virulently anti-Israel and anti-Semitic rhetoric and Holocaust denial are often matched by other Iranian leaders And the Iranian regime itself has continued to sponsor anti-Zionism conferences and pseudo-academic lectures and exhibits, questioning the fact of the Holocaust. This report offers a selected uh, year-by-year compilation of Ahmadinejad's um, statements on Jews, the Holocaust, and Israel in his own words. Now I'm going to show you. Uh, with these uh, year, this year-by-year comp- compilation of what he actually said through the years, or through these through his statements, and I may not do all of them but because we only have about seven minutes left. I really want to get to to show you something that's actually happening in the United States. So I'll read a couple of them for you. In October 14, 2010, that wasn't very long ago, he said, You are the heroes that guard Lebanon's sovereignty. You have proven that there is no force in the world, that no force in the world can beat you. The resistance of the Lebanese nation, drawn from faith in God, can stand up to any Israeli force, planes, tanks, and ships. The Zionists planned to destroy this village, but it stood strong against the occupiers. The world should know that Zionists are mortal. Today, the Lebanese nation is alive and is is a role model for the regional nations. The whole world should know that the Zionists will eventually disappear and Bint Shebel will remain alive. This was at a rally in southern Lebanese town of Bint Shebel, which borders Israel. Um, the day before he said, we oppose the occupation and aggression and the crimes committed by the Zionist enemy and those who support it. Support it. And that was at a news conference with the Lebanese President, Mikhail Schulman. Okay. Now this is what it says about the event of September 11, 2001. He says this. First, the event, and this is September 23, 2010. First, the event of the September 11, 2001, which has affected the whole world for almost a decade. All of a sudden, the news of the attack on the Twin Towers was broadcast using numerous footages of the innocent. Almost all governments and known figures strongly condemned this incident, but then a propaganda machine came into full force. It was implied that the whole world was exposed to a huge danger, namely terrorism, and that the only way to save the world would be to deploy forces to Afghanistan. Eventually, Afghanistan and shortly thereafter, Iraq were occupied. Please take note, and this is Salma Dineshad speaking. It was said that some. 3,000 people were killed on the September 11th, for which they, we are all very saddened. Yet, up until now, in Afghanistan and Iraq, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, millions wounded and displaced, and the conflict is still going on and expanding. In identifying those responsible for the attack, there were three viewpoints, one that, that a very powerful and complex terrorist group, able to successfully cross all layers of American intelligence and security carried out the attack. This is the main viewpoint advocated by American statesmen. Two, the seven segments within the U.S. government orchestrated the attack to reverse the declining American economy and its grips on Middle East the I mean, Middle East in order also to save the Zionist regime. The majority of American people, as well as other nations and politicians, agree with this view. Three, it was carried out by a terrorist group, but the American government supported and took advantage of the situation. Apparently, this viewpoint has fewer proponents. The main evidence linking the incident was a few passports found in the huge volume of rubble in a video of an individual whose place of domicile was known by... known, but It was announced by he, that he had been involved in the oil deals with American officials. It was also covered up and said that due to the explosion and fire, no trace of suicide attackers were found. Okay. I'm trying to see which ones would be good that he said. Um, If the Zionist regime Wants to repeat its past mistakes This will constitute its demise And annihilation With Allah's help The new Middle East will be be A Middle East without Zionists And imperialists So what he's saying is If you hear him He's saying Allah's help The new Middle East Will be in Middle East without Zionism. Now, what I wanted to really talk about was actually um, what's going on in the United States, and we actually had some um, convention conventions of the Islamic Association of Palestine taking place here in the United States. The so propaganda of hatred and, and jihad was actually promoted in Kansas City State, in the Kansas City in the state of Missouri where I am actually located. Um, I'm not going to be able to actually get into this, but we're going to talk next week about the Muslim Muslim Brotherhood. Forgive me for not being able to talk so well today and being a little bit, i um, choppy in what I've been saying, but I hope the information was helpful for you today, and I hope next week my allergies aren't going to bother me so much to throw off my concentration and what I'm saying. So I just hope that what was said today was helpful to you, and that next week you'll join me again on As the Day Approaches, where we will discuss more of what is happening in the world with Islam. And we are going to take a real... Um, Good look at the Muslim Brotherhood. This should be a good show next week. I hope you have a great day today and a great week. And as the day approaches, don't forget to meet together and discuss these things. As things get harder, we need to meet more. And that's out of Hebrews 10.25. God bless you.